Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, it's a Tuesday and there must be elections somewhere. Five or six to be exact. We'll talk about the establishment versus Tea Party and the GOP. What exactly is the establishment? The New York Times airs its dirty laundry to the world, but the bigger question is, was this an issue of female executive discrimination or the firing of a bad manager? Eric Holder brings some big cases to light this week, but is Eric Holder a help or a hindrance to the administration? It's a Americans take right to counsel for granted. It's a big problem worldwide. We'll talk to the International Legal Foundation's Jennifer Smith. This and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good, af- good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, ironically, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and former Floor Chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here on a beautiful afternoon. It is absolutely beautiful. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, a longtime Senate staffer, and a apparently a huge baller on the court, a handsome and distinguished fellow from the Simpson Center, the Honorable Alan Moore. What's going on, Shaq? <laughs> I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I called you a baller. That's a compliment. Uh, to my... To my one o'clock, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. She's the former General Counsel of Omaha Point T2, the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he's the former Executive Director of the great state of Maryland's Democratic Party, longtime Washington Insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And this is, we got a lot to talk about today, so it's Tuesday, and that means that it, there's got to be elections somewhere. But before I get to that, by the way, if you want to join the conversation anytime during the program, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. You can also tweet your questions to me, at Backroom Politics on Twitter, and you can also email me, justin at backroompolitics.org, with your questions. Uh, election Day kind of primaries all across the country. There are six states that are running primaries right now and some very key, key races. The races right now that are going on, you've got Kentucky, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arkansas, Idaho, and Oregon going on. 
lots of dynamics going on in these in, in these races. Let's start right now with the one that's got a lot of attention right now is Georgia. Alan, a lot of eyes are on Georgia, particularly on the GOP side. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what is establishment, but there's establishment Tea Party going on in Georgia, something fierce. Why is that significant right now? Well, it, it's significant this election cycle because the, the Tea Party has had some success um, in some states in the last couple of cycles. Uh, it's begun to diminish some of the organized money um, uh, and uh, and longtime party folks are seeing that that there is a cost associated with uh, bringing in new people who are pretty rigid in their uh, thinking and pretty limited in their experience, and it's making the job of governing uh, a real challenge. And so some of the uh, uh, some of the political money uh, has concluded or the, the, the folks with political money, that they need to get involved to make sure that winning candidates or candidates who have a, a, a good shot or the best shot at winning aren't wiped out via inattention or some emotional burst by, uh, by we'll call them Tea Party folks. But remember, the Tea Party has is, is, is got many, many faces around the country, but uh, we've seen some elections so far, some contested primaries, where where the Tea Party-backed folks have lost. It's not been universal, uh, and it all depends. Everything politics is local, so people have to go out and campaign and win and make their case. But, but in, the, in this case, Bob Hines, you, you know, the, the non-establishment individual running in the in the, this run for the replacement for Senator Saxby Jambliss. Uh, in the Senate race, you got David Perdue of Dollar, the former CEO of Dollar General, not the chicken company. Uh, he has been taking a brunt of attacks, but he's largely seen as a Tea Party sweetheart. Uh, there's, there's a kind of an odd dynamic with him being a, a, a CEO corporate type who, with a company that has had a strong money presence in Washington, Dollar General. Does it surprise you that somebody like a David Perdue could get that much traction in the Tea Party establishment versus what's going on as far as the general GOP and RNC? I don't think it's not surprising. Uh, that's not the only race going on in Georgia either. You know, there's a number of you know the in the uh, primary in the in the House of Representatives, you've got three of the House members all running. Two of them are very dyed-in-the-wool Tea Party people, and one of them, Jack uh, Kingston. Jack Kingston. Well, Jack Kingston's running for Senate. Yeah, he's running for Senate. But he, that, that's, one of the things, that's one of the things that confuses me, is if you look at Jack Kingston, Jack Kingston <clears throat> was looked at as a Tea Party sweetheart himself, but in this race, he's now established. What? He is now, uh, he is now uh, let's say, a, a mainstream Republican, let's put it that way. You know, establishment tends to be a bad word in my mind. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about yeah. that in the next half hour, but I, I want to go back to the idea that, you know, when you see, we're now seeing a, a, a bevy. I mean, the Democrats in that Senate race, they've got a rock star in Michelle Nunn. I mean, she's looked at, there's no real opposition. She's going to win this thing handily in the primary, but she's got a tough road to hoe, Denise Krepp, in going up against who would be, a very strong Republican base in the state of Georgia. And that's going to be a problem for her. Um, I, I loved her, her father, 
very well respected within the Democratic Party, and, and she comes fairly high, highly recommended. The best thing that could happen for us as Democrats is that there's a runoff with the Republicans. They believe themselves money-wise and keep attacking one another, and then we get to go after them. Uh, I think that's going to happen. I think the runoff's going to happen between Purdue and Kingston. Uh, they seem to be the two strongest candidates, and the question will be, who remains after that fight, and then what do we do after that, and what's the dialogue? I mean, you have a very... Georgia's a very interesting state. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Georgia peach by birth. I came out of Atlanta, and Atlanta is very different than Athens. It's very different parts of the state. You have some very urban areas, and you have some very rural areas, and let's see where Jack Kingston gets his votes and where Purdue gets his votes, and that'll show us where we're going to have to fight for... Uh, but it's, but it's a, it, it almost seems, Alan Moore, that there's a flip-flop here. Purdue going for your Valdosta, your Macon, your Statesboro votes, versus a Jack Kingston who's largely looked at as Tea Party-esque, who's going to probably garner a lot of the metropolitan Atlanta-Savannah Republican vote. Uh, it, it's an interesting dynamic down there. It, it, are we seeing a, a slight reversal in what the new norm might be in the GOP? No, I don't know. I don't know enough about the, the details of Georgia politics. It's just, it's, it's an open seat. It's a, it's a, a state where Republicans have, have, have done well. And so there, there are several congressmen, as Bob mentioned, giving up their seats to try to become the Republican candidate for the Senate because they think they've got a real shot at it. And, and, uh, and it but it is a bit of a toss-up because uh, Michelle Nunn, who's a, who's a mature, responsible person with a credible record, um, who wouldn't, frankly, normally be much of a candidate but for the family history. So, and, and her dad was around a long time ago. So does that still linger? I don't know. I mean, you called her a rock star. I'm not sure about rock star yet. She just, she just is the person who the, the party's rallied around because she's got some unique advantages, um, and uh, they're hoping that maybe they can pick one up uh, down in Georgia, but it's, it's going to be a hard slog no matter which Republican prevails. Carl Tubin. <clears throat> I think people still remember her father, especially in Georgia, and uh, I think that's going to be a big factor in the race. If he, and I'm sure he will, goes out and campaigns with his daughter, that's going to be one heck of a team. And they'll have other people come in, too. Um, uh, and I, you know, as far as Kingston is concerned, uh, they have been talking about on, on TV. This morning we're talking about his Tea, tea Party roots. And uh, that, that doesn't do much for me. But, you know, with uh, Michelle, John Warner endorsed her. So she's got crossover appeal. That's because John Warner and her and father, Sam Nunn. Oh, I like know, this. but th but that's going to pull in votes in Georgia. I mean, John Warner is not exactly Mr. Vote Getter in Georgia. Right. Um, and I mean, John, has John been out of the Senate for almost as long 20, as Sam Nunn. Twenty <laughs> years. I mean, none. No. Warner Warner was around uh, until not that long ago. Until like six years ago, but none has been out of the Senate for, for at least 18, 18, 20 years almost. I, I can just tell you, in the South, we have long memories, and I can tell you when Strong Thurmond's son was running, when you started talking about Han's son, I mean, people remember the fathers, and in many cases, the mothers as well, and that will bring votes. And by the way, who is voting in Georgia? I mean, are they going to try to get an older demographic, or are they trying to get a younger demographic? Because none will 
will attract the well, older demographic. Coming, coming from Georgia and being familiar with Georgia politics, I mean, I remember Jack Kingston's freshman run back in 19, uh, 1993 uh, when he first ran out of, out of that district, which covered southeast Georgia. Uh, I can tell you right now, that has, that has been a large switch. There was a very strong, young, conservative movement going on when Jack first ran back in 93. That has now shifted, and there's a very strong, older, senior vote that's happening out of Georgia that's getting a lot of play down there. And, 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 and that might be beneficial to somebody like a David Perdue. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. It wasn't David Perdue's father, Governor. I his brother. His brother. His brother was. His brother was 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 governor back in the early back in the early nineties. Right. So it doesn't surprise me that he has you know he's got name recognition. It doesn't surprise me that they're running neck but and neck. But again, we go back to the situation, Bob Hines, where you got a the, the brother of a former Republican governor who largely was well respected yeah. in his term in Atlanta. Uh, you would think that coming from that family he would be looked at as an establishment-type Republican as well, and he's done everything possible to distance himself, not just from his brother's GOP roots. I mean, we remember seeing uh, Governor Perdue at, at, uh, at the um, uh, 1988 and um, was it 88 or the early 90s, one of the RNCs, giving a very, very dynamic yeah. speech. Uh, he's pushed away from that. He doesn't want to be associated with that. Is that a smart move on David Perdue's part? I don't know enough about Georgia politics to understand exactly why he's doing what he's doing. But he must think that's the that's a positive thing for himself. I'm a little bit surprised about it. As, but, as am I. But, now, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you, you know, the, the, in, the southern politics is changing a lot in the last few years. I mean, you know, you know uh, the Tea Party... You know, a few years ago was was raging all over the place. It's it's just drawn back a little bit now. It's it's not it's not as effective as it used to be. It's, the candidates they have been running have been weak candidates. They have not been smart people. They've not been good people, and they, they wasted a lot of money. And they waste. I mean, they tried to waste money, or actually, they tried. They did waste money in North Carolina. Yeah. Ellis won. He was the Republican candidate. Yeah. Elmer's won. I mean, and there were two strong Tea Party yeah. folks that were put up against them in the. The establishment of the Republican Party said, "It's nay, no, nay. We want somebody who get can get in." Yeah, and, and the good thing about the Republican Party, just for a moment, is there be. It is clear to me that across the country, generally, in the states, in the national leadership, people have people are trying to help better qualified candidates to become the nominees, rather than, and they're trying to have fewer conventions. Where they pick, the, you know, where the, where the where the hotheads can make can make more have more power than the average voting citizen, and that they're trying to get more primaries. They're doing a lot of th things trying to make the election broader based in the primaries, so that they'll get better quality candidates, and that's a very good thing for the Republican now, Party. Now we talk about that in Georgia. Let's talk about the soap opera going on in Oregon right now. I mean, my God, the GOP. You want to talk about a state party in total disarray? You've got We've had one of the stellar, more, I'm trying to think of a nice word to use, when we had the gentleman from the Oregon State Tea Party oh, here. Oh, that's right. He's the one that called Call, me a fascist, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he called you a fascist on the air. That, I thought that was good. That was, that was <coughs> that's right. right. I forgot about that. <coughs> he saw right through you. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's 
Yeah, yeah, the only thing yeah. separating you from Lennon is a beard. So, I'm sorry, what was that Carl Tewin? I think there's a few more physical attributes. Oh, yeah, she's alive, he's dead. I just want to know whether he was one of the two guys that was running for governor. With the beard. So no, 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 no. That's, that's Idaho. Idaho. That's a whole other issue. But we've got, you know, we'll talk about Idaho, too. There's a lot of crazy um, people up there. But let, but Carl is wishing he was out in Idaho. <laughs> he does. He does. I, was, I mean, I lo- I'd love to hear Carl talk, reflect on the whole business of what it feels like on primary day when... You've got some contested races, because I'm sure in your, your history... Well, we're going to talk about that in the establishment portion, because I definitely want his, his, context, <laughs> uh, his context on that. But when we look at Oregon, the Republicans were putting up who they thought would be a dream winner, a neurosurgeon out of Portland, a female, a young female, uh, Monica Webby, and unfortunately Monica has uh, relationship issues, like stalking. And harassment. It it was reported in the media. Now, by the way, she's gotten the endorsement of Newt Gingrich and Mitt Romney and other political Republican leaders. But on Friday, uh, Politico report, friends of Politico reported that Webby's ex-boyfriend last year accused her of stalking him, entering his home without permission, and harassing his employees at work. They both then downplayed that. And then, this uh, yesterday... Webby received another blow when the Oregonian reported that her ex-husband has been accusing her of ongoing harassment. So they really picked the rock star on that one, Bob Hines. (laughs) Is it safe to say that the Democrats might keep the Senate in Oregon? I think it might be safe to say something like that. Alan Moore? We're not many months away from an election. Um, it's, uh, It's certain... It's certainly the case that what they were hoping for has not been playing out quite the way they thought, on the one hand. On the other hand, there are a lot of women in this country who are going to relate to a woman who dealt with guys who were jerks. So who knows what exactly has happened? You know, the the stalking thing is bizarre, but she actually had a key to his apartment. She went into his apartment. The the fights with her husband um, were from, I think, seven years ago. Now, we're going to know more and more than we ever wanted to know and than she ever wanted us to know. The, the boyfriend and she have basically downplayed all of this. Uh, I don't know about the ex, but he's the ex. Um, it, it's, it's a very unfortunate diversion. But, uh, and it wasn't as though uh, uh, the incumbent, Merkley, was you know, seen as highly vulnerable. I think the thought was, gee... Maybe we can take advantage of anti-incumbency and the the the, the odd he politics. He is a freshman. I mean, he's odd, still finishing yeah, out his first absolutely. term. The odd politics of Oregon, but but uh, it, it's it's not playing. It probably had to go perfectly. It may have had to go perfectly for her. We'll see. We'll see. Well, you know, one thing. One thing. If you've got the key to the apartment, you're not really stalking. You're just you've been invited in. <laughs> <laughs> it's not breaking and entering. It's just entering. Yeah. Uh, Carl Tubin. I mean, come I, on. I, I Coincidental that all this comes out the weekend before the primary. And, uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no accident there. Yeah, yeah, shocking. 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 <laughs> Carl's shocking. The long honed instinct. <laughs> I know where that's coming from, and I think Carl's right. Yeah, yeah. but this has got Debbie Wasserman Schultz written all over it. Yeah, uh, but now, on the flip side, you've got a week 
governor in, in Kitzhaber, and it looks like the GOPs actually might get a chance to get, for the first time in, in decades, a Republican governor to take out this weak, this very vulnerable Katzberger. One other, thing, one other thing in Oregon, Oregon was one of the handful of states who tried to set up their own health exchange under Obamacare that was, was a disaster. absolute disaster and embarrassment. And Kitzhaber's taken a big hit on that out there. I mean, the, the Democrats in general are, we just, we don't know how that's all going to play out between now and, and, and November. But here's a, here's a situation where you have an establishment Republican, the guy is a Republican uh, uh, the former uh, NRCC chairman, Greg Walden. Uh, Greg Walden's making a very big push, and has got some moderate support behind him. Denise, in a very blue state like Oregon, could a moderate voice like a Greg Walden come out and surprise everybody and take the governor's mansion in Portland? Well, yeah. I mean, think New York and think a couple of other states where that's happened. I mean, nobody expected to see a Republican in New York and it happened and that's a pretty blue area. So it, it, it can. The question will be what's the long-term impact of having a Republican in Oregon? It's 2014. If you're a four-year, you're going to 2018. You're getting really, really close to the census. Right. So I would be very, very concerned about that and if he, if he wins, we hope that he's only a one-termer because if he wins in 2018, we're going to have some problems. Now, Moving on a little bit, let's look at Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has got a, 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 a huge situation going on there. The one that's got a lot of people's attention here is the race going against uh, incumbent Congressman Schuster, who's, chairman of, uh, who's cha chairman of Transportation and Infrastructure. He's got a very powerful base, a very powerful name. His dad, you know, they, they largely call him Bud Light. I shouldn't say that on the air, but... Uh, but Congressman Schuster has got a former Coast Guard captain trying to make a run at it. doesn't look like he's getting a lot of traction, though. Denise, you're shaking your head. You're familiar with it. Yeah, no, he's not going to get any traction. Schuster has his father, and Schuster has himself. He's done a lot of good work on House T&I, and it's been very hard for somebody who doesn't have that pedigree to dislodge him. It, it's just not going to happen. I'm surprised you're not up there working with the uh, Coast Guard. Captain. No, actually, actually, uh, I never heard of the guy. <laughs> I never heard of the guy. I got, I got a lot of phone calls going. Hey, do you know this guy? I, go, I never heard of him. He, he was, a, he was a Coast Guard pilot, and 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 uh, I, I, I can say that there's some other stuff I can say, but I'm not going to say it on the air because we're, 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 we're all about civility. Um, but you, you got, you got a, uh, a, an open Democratic seat with, uh, they've got to replace uh, Congresswoman Allison Schwartz. Uh, this is going to be an interesting one where you've got a former congressman trying to make her way back in in uh, Marjorie Margolis. Denise, does Margolis have enough to maybe recapture her former glory from, what was it, 10 years ago she served? Well, I'm going to defer. The reason, the reason why she, she lost is that she had uh, voted, cast a final vote for uh, Obamacare. And the Republicans all looked at her and said, "You're toast." And they were right. Uh, can she make a comeback? She's got her her uh, her uh, in-laws. Yeah, her in-laws don't in. hurt. Yeah. Uh, her son, her son, her son Mark is married to one Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea Clinton. <laughs> Bill Clinton was down there. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, I think Hillary might have been there. I'm not sure about that. But, you know, it's, it's and, and, and she's, she's a Baltimorean. And I, I knew her um, in high school. And uh, she is a very, very good lady. And uh, I hope she makes it. Well, let's let's talk a little bit real quick about Kentucky. We'll go. We'll deal with Idaho in the next half hour. But uh, Kentucky, Mitch McConnell has an issue. Bob, he's going to win his primary big. The Tea Party guy just is not caught on. Can Can Mitch McConnell survive in general? Do you think? Closer. It'll, it's closer, but he will. Alan Moore. I, he certainly can. Will he? I don't know. You know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interestingly close. It's it's been fascinating in the last generation or so to see what can happen to to House speakers, uh, majority leaders, uh, majority leaders of the Senate, minority leaders of uh, the Senate. Um, uh, we've seen a number of these folks get knocked off. Um, the basic argument being that uh, they. They, they went Washington. Uh, McConnell's, uh, you know, he's demonized uh, left and right by, uh, by the Democrats and by the pundits. Um, and he's not Mr. Personality. He's actually quite an effective guy. But it, it, he doesn't it, have it, the it, dynamics that you would expect no, to really we, blow and out. And we've kind of, we've, because earmarks came into ill repute, if you will, one of the, one of the things he was able to do from has been able to do for a very long time, which is bring home a lot of bacon. Um, sides of pork is what he would bring in. Um, and, uh, and, and people do pay some attention uh, to that, but that, that's something now that he's, he's distanced himself from. You can't do as much of it. And, and, and whether or not he's an effective minority leader doesn't translate very well to votes back home. What translates back home is, do we like the guy? Do we feel comfortable with him? Does he bring money home? He's, he's hemorrhaging polling numbers. I mean, you know, we, we, I mean, in context, from what you would expect from a seated minority leader in the U.S. Senate, his poll numbers aren't showing the type of incumbency weight that you would expect from a Mitch McConnell. Bob Ines? Well, certainly uh, he, he is not leading his... Uh, Assuming he wins the primary, which I do, his his numbers against the against the uh, the uh, Democratic candidate is is not that big. It's pretty close. But I still think he's going to win for the simple reason that he's been there a long time. He's got an awful lot of friends back home. He's done a lot for Kentucky, and he is the leader. And I think that uh, I think he will be all right. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. We'll talk about your. We'll talk about Idaho. Oh, man, that's going to be a good 10 minutes of radio. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned, marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. 
best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to continue our discussion about the primaries going on in six states and some key races, but I want to go a little bit to a, 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 a sideshow, a, a circus act. Let's talk about the Republican, the Republican primary for governor in Idaho. Uh, did anybody see the, the Republican gubernatorial debate that happened last week? You did, Carl. Just highlights. Uh, just highlights? Uh, or lowlights. Lowlights low is right. <laughs> I, 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 uh, Carl Tuman, how would you describe that gubernatorial debate? Well, words I can't use on the show. <laughs> Let me try. You know, it was Flaming really, crap show? It was really interesting because... The Democratic candidate said, let's have a debate. And the Republican candidate said, said fine. And the governor said, fine. But we're going to invite everybody to the debate. And then, then you had, you know, three or four or five in suits. Then you had these two guys with beards. One guy, one guy had all this black stuff on, you know. I mean, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> There's a part of me... And, and and Denise, there's a part of me that says, okay, that's that's what the process is for. If you want to run, 
if you want to take that on, go ahead. But at the same time, it also makes a circus of what is already a very fragile political process that, you know, instead of getting people engaged, it's a, it's a reality show. I mean, that, that gubernatorial debate for the Republicans, I mean, you had two credible candidates and two candidates way out in right field who, although, you know, it, 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 you know, the rent's too damn high again. And it's just bizarre. At what point do we say, all right, let's take this seriously now? Well, Justin, politics have always been a reality show. I mean, that's just been life. Now we just get to see it on TV. You know, in the past, you may not have seen it, but you do. And I do think that people should have a right to campaign. Um, will people vote for them? Maybe, maybe not. But if we start cutting people out, then we start cutting out what is the core of our country, which is democracy. Carl Tubin? The only reason why this happened is because the Republican governor wanted them there so that he wouldn't have to go against the Democratic candidate all the time. And he, he achieved his purpose. It and was, so then, if yeah. that's the case, go for the Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Moore? No, I was just reflecting. I was talking about the, the guy dressed in black. He was wearing black leather, sort of motorcycle outfit. And I thought, right. all right, this, this is as close to a black candidate as you're going to get for governor in Idaho, <laughs> uh, a guy in his black leather. Um, but I, this was a strategic move by uh, by the governor. I don't think this was sort of democracy in action. I mean, every time the, 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 the major parties or major political events occur, there are questions about who gets to be on the podium. Um, but may, maybe if there's a silver lining to this. Remember, the only reason we know about it is because it was so ridiculous and absurd <laughs> that it was on the news shows and we can all get a laugh out of it. Um, I mean, you have, you, have, you, have, you have the governor, you have the current seat of governor, Republican right. Butch Otter, and then you've got his big challenger, Russ Fulcher, who, who's the state senator from, from uh, Idaho, from central Idaho. Um, th that is a credible debate. And then you've got this sideshow. And then you've got the laugher candidates. But right. what I'm thinking about is that when, when people around the country see this, and no one likes to, you know, on the one hand, it's amusing to the rest of us, but if you're in Idaho, you're thinking, you know, I don't want us to be a laughing stock. So maybe, just maybe, around the country people say, you know, we, we need to be careful when we're doing primaries. This is either party can draw this conclusion about who gets in the door. And uh, the, 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 uh, the campaign, the organization that runs the presidential debates gets into a problem every four years because they have very strict rules that their bipartisan group has put together about how much you have to have in a legitimate presidential poll to get on the podium. <coughs> well, Ralph Nader has never gotten enough, so he sues them every year, so and, they and they prevail. Ross Perot did it. Ross Perot made it because yeah. he had enough votes. I mean, he had enough, enough uh, results in a poll. So, but, but you don't just let every... <laughs> Every Tom, Tom, Dick, Tom and Harry, Harry, you know, yeah. who who somehow gets on the ballot, uh, stand up and uh, and take that time. But the one thing about Idaho, and, and our friends at Politico point this out, is when you look at Idaho in the governor's race, and also uh, the House primaries uh, for Mike Simpson and Tea Party challenger Brian Smith. There's a, there's a very distinct divide that's happening right now, and this is going to lead into what is establishment. There is actually a fight intra-party intra between the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Club for Growth. 
Is there something to this, Bob? Is that fight something that the GOP should really take heed of? Darn right they should. Why is that so important? Well, yeah, look. What's going on is a, uh, in, in the financial side of the campaign, is a real struggle between what we might call traditional funding sources for, the, uh, for, for a party. And, uh, and a lot of business a lot of businesses have always been in favor of Republicans and Democrats have always had support of unions. And what we've got now in a great in a, in a lot of places, we've got very, very wealthy individuals. Uh, we've got these guys out in, in, in San Jose and you know some some what's the name? Tom Caesar or Streetser? Steyer? Steyer. Steyer. Yeah. yeah, tons yeah. of money out there. You've got the Koch brothers, everybody, you've got these outside groups that are throwing money at, camp at, at, at candidates who support their point of view. And they're, they're outside the, the normal lines. They don't have any ties to the parties. They just have their own desire to do something, to move, to move heaven and earth to get their candidates nominated. And it's a, uh, strange enough, as it has been, it at least particularly in the, on the Republican side, a lot of that money has, has seemed to be going to waste supporting some of these more esoteric Tea Party type people. They've been losing in the primary this year at much greater uh, numbers than, than we saw in 2010 and 2012. Yeah, but they're not getting the money this year. Um, well, yeah, Alan, Alan Moore? No, the, the, uh, the, some of that bigger money is now, is now paying more attention to electability. Um, it, right. It's not that there's no money. And, 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 and the root of part of this problem, there's, there's many pieces to it, but, but remember that it was the... the the McCain Feingold um, uh, finance campaign finance reform bill that basically shut off big money to the parties. So the money was there, couldn't go to the parties anymore. So it's going to find a way to be involved, and and uh, and you can't it, keep it. It out. has involved. It's it's you know going going, going back to uh, to a big court case. Uh, back in the 70s, called Buckley v. Vallejo, said, you can't limit what people spend. And we've been, and then there are political efforts to try to put limits here and put limits there, and they get pushed aside or they get worked around. Um, and uh, at some point, maybe, uh, the spigot to party system will reopen again in a more significant way, and I think we could all benefit from that. Bob Hines? Just to finish what Alan just said, what we, what we really need to see is a system where the parties can raise the money because whether you like the party structures or not, these are the people who are more uh, involved in not just electing a particular point of view but electing the party structure. They're the people who are trying to see to it that good candidates are found, Candidates are developed. Money can be put in. If they want to find ways to put money into the campaigns of the people who really could could possibly win, when you just have these 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 the money going to the most ridiculous candidates in many respects, but and raise a lot of money for them, put a lot of money into their campaigns. You're wasting a lot of money. You're putting bad candidates in place, and it doesn't do the political system of the country very much help when you have the lesser quality and able candidates 
winning primaries and then running in elections and losing and just it, it, it wastes everybody's time. But Carl, as, as a former executive director of, of the uh, Democratic Party in the state of Maryland, I mean, you come from the old school days back when the ED and the, and the chairman had a lot of stroke, a lot of pull, and pretty much ran that political boss machine and, and could get electable candidates based on the money that the parties could draw. Alan points out McCain-Feingold, which kind of hammered that, but it seems that there's, there's other problems internal to the state parties right now, not just a money issue, but the internal fighting, as we're seeing in some GOP parties uh, around the country. Well, the money, you know, this is back in 1960, we almost had, we had no rules. So people could throw cash around, uh, all kinds of different things. I mean, we had we had one builder who would walk into a political campaign and said, and he, he always had money in the paper bag. Here's a paper bag full of money. Wouldn't say how much it was. You had to count it and find out that it was $4,000 or $5,000. Uh, uh, also, uh, in 1966, they, uh, uh, the tallest people wanted Tom Finan, the Attorney General, to be the gubernatorial candidate. But then you had uh, a paving contractor, you had an a, a Eastern Shore lawyer, a Baltimore lawyer who lived on the Eastern Shore, and four or five other people got into the governor's race. And, and all of a sudden, um, this fellow who was a paving contractor got the nomination. And he got the nomination because he was, he was really playing on the, on the, the race card uh, he, his slogan was, your home is your castle protected. And uh, <clears throat> all the Democrats ran away from him and supported Spiro Agnew. It was my last In vote. In the general. It right. Was, it was my but, last vote for a Republican. Wow. Well, <laughs> wow. So, but, well, you couldn't pick the Alan, worst one, could you? Yeah, true. <laughs> Alan Moore, though, when we see... He his lesson. <laughs> when we see the internal fighting, like when we see the U.S. Chamber versus Club for Growth, it seems like they're taking the already stifled money that we see from organizations like that and, and splitting it up, tearing the bills in half. Is this an effective way to have a party truly in politics today? First of all, it's interesting that we're talking about the effectiveness of a party being dependent upon what the Chamber of Commerce does versus what the Club for Growth does, as opposed to what the party does. So that, that's sort of a statement on, on, how, on how bad we are. But you know something? I don't care if they disagree. That's part of the system. If the chamber has a point of view that it wants to pursue, and this upstart organization, Club for Growth, has a different perspective on what they want to pursue, and they can raise the money to do it, have at it. And if there's some fights and we lose a few people along the way, we start, we learn in that process too. We, we've lost some races that we could have won by nominating the wrong people. So what came of that? Some internal change, some reflection, some money moving in a different direction. So, you know, it tends to sort itself Denise out. Denise Crow. I mean, the races you're talking about happened in Missouri. Well, we could go back to Missouri. We could go back to... We can go back to Indiana, Delaware, Indiana, and and, uh, and Delaware. But, you know, those are races. A lot of people learn from them. But you still have people that you know. You haven't referenced the Heritage Foundation yet. I mean, all of a sudden, it's the Heritage versus the Chamber versus the other. So my question to you is, what is the party? I mean, 
traditionally the party was a Democrat versus a Republican, and you all knew what a Democrat was, and you all knew what a Republican was. Right now, I don't know what a Republican is, and I think that's part of the problem. But now on top of that, you have this other moniker, Bob Hines, we were talking about it earlier on the show, this, this, this moniker of establishment of Republican versus non-establishment Republican. My question is, what is an establishment Republican today? <laughs> well, I, I would suspect that you could get a variety of answers. Well, give me but, yours. I also want Alan's take yeah. on this, too. Uh, well, you know, establishment is sort of a word people use when they want to derogate something. It's not a positive statement. But what, the, what, what we're talking about here is the, the party structure. I suppose what the establishment is, is the, the head of the party, you have a chairman, there's a national committee made up of people from all the states and the territories that have votes in the, in the congressional and national elections. And that is the, the, the framework, if you will, the skeleton of the, of the established party. And then you have the, uh, the campaign efforts, the political efforts, the, uh, the uh, advisors, the, uh, the people who help you to build your campaign, the people who, who, buy the, who buy the time, all of this structure that leads up to putting campaign ads, putting campaign structures together, that's the, quote, establishment. The, and the, uh, the non-establishment, at least in the Republican Party, has been a series of independent groups um, with a lot of money, individuals with a lot of money, and a very, very um, uh, rigid, principled viewpoint, which, which fails to understand the requirement of being able to negotiate once you get elected. And the problem that the Tea Party has always had is the situation that they are so rigid in their, in their legislative style that it's my way or the highway. And whether you're a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican, that, you're, you're not going to win those kind of votes. Alan Moore, you don't. agree? You know, my way or the highway, that sounds like Harry Reid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's well, we're, talking about, we're talking about Republicans. No. We're talking about Republicans. No, we're talking about party <laughs> so, establishment. So, you know, an establishment Republican, I think the, the, there isn't any agreed-upon definition any more than there's an agreed-upon definition of what Tea Party means because there are, there are at least 50 different Tea Parties around the country and sometimes more when you have more than one in a state. Um, but we see patterns that we associate with 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 the Tea Party that first emerged um, four years ago um, and when it was people who were just mad as hell and were going to say no to almost everything versus uh, Republicans who are more traditional in, the, in, in trying to work together to make something happen. Um, and you've got, a, you've, got, you've got constituencies out there that are all over the place. You've got people who say, yes, I want people who can work together. And you've got people who say, hell no, a pox on all of them, throw them all out, throw, throw a wrench into the works, and, and, and stop all of this stuff from happening, and that's just fine with me. And, that, and there's appeal to that, as we've seen, to, uh, to independents, and, you know, and some people who might otherwise vote uh, Democratic. So, it, the, you know, the, the, the lines between the parties have been muddied a lot in the last half dozen years. But, but let's talk about the real implications. 
you've got a, a bill that's uh, been negotiated between the House and the Senate. It's the Water Resources Development Act. It is a big bill for a lot of areas in the country. It brings dredging. I mean, on the maritime side, you need dredging so that you can be ready for the post-Panamax ships. House agreed, Senate agreed, everybody's looking great, and all of a sudden the Heritage Foundation pops up this week and says, no, no, this isn't a good bill. So, well, okay, maybe from your perspective it's not, but from the business perspective it's an excellent bill because it improves infrastructure. So this is my concern about some of these non-establishment characters popping up at the last moment and trying to influence something that is actually very good. But from a state party perspective, I mean, when you're trying to get everybody rallied around the candidates, trying to get electable candidates in place to go to a general election, from a state party perspective, Carl Tubin, the, you know, I, I mean, and this is not the first time we've seen this establishment versus anti-establishment. You had it very much in the in the uh, mid '80s into the early '90s. Right. You had establishment versus progressive candidates. Right. Is, is, is there a way today? that the state party might be able to regain some control of these monikers being used in primaries and get control of the primary in a, as a whole? Uh, you know, it, it's Maryland now is, is a wide open system and uh, anybody can run for, for a House of Delegates or State Senate and uh, this year you've got more people running uh, uh, than I've, I've seen in a long time. So it, 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 that's kind of hard to control. The big thing is after they after they they win to try to uh, work with them so that they're not going to be way off to the right or way off to the left, but they're going to be you know uh, even keeled uh, candidates and good candidates and, and, and not spout off or whatever. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, Bob Bob was talking about. The way the Republicans are, are things. The Democrats, <clears throat> since uh, Chuck Manette was chairman in, in the uh, 80s, in the Reagan years, we established field operations, uh, and, and during elections, we have uh, liaisons to the field and all that, and we built we built up a real structure so that the national party is is communicating with the state parties to these people, and it, it's worked very well. Now you've got something new added because of the um, uh, technology that that uh, Obama used in this, in this in the first and second election, and and a lot of the a lot of that has been shared with Democratic candidates and state parties, and it's going to be very interesting to see how that works. And I want to I want to go back to the governor's race in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Allison Schwartz wanted to run for governor because she thought, I'm, I'm, you know, fairly, I'm a congresswoman. I've done a lot in, in the Congress. I'm going to have a, I'm going to run away with this thing. And then all of a sudden, she has a, a, a businessman who puts in millions of dollars. Self-funded, basically. Self-funded, basically. And of course, now she's saying, uh, just wait, my ground game. <laughs> I've heard that before. My ground game is going to make up for all this. Is, is, well, when you when you look at that situation and you look at the money that's coming in from like a club for growth, the U.S. Chamber, from the Koch brothers, and and from the Hollywood elite out for the Democrats, are, is 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 the self-funding going to be the wave of the future in making people quote unquote electable Bob Hines? Well, they're certainly not going to go away. 
Let us hope, though, in, in one way or another, the parties themselves, the, the people who are basically trying to structure policies, build organizations uh, for the two parties, we hope that they will also be able to find their funding because if we, we only have very wealthy groups, whether they're unions or business or individuals, whatever they are, and all they do is target specific ideas that they want to push or defeat. And if that's all we're going to get on, on Capitol Hill, being barraged with that kind of stuff, it's going to be a very, it's, the kind of Congress we have right now is be the kind of Congress we're going to have for a long, long time. Carl, and that is not a good idea. Carl Tubin. Well, I was, what I was going to say is that in order to, in order to stop some of this, You've got to have, try to create new laws to take care of some of this. And that's going to be very hard because the Republicans don't want it. It's going to, it's going against all the people that, that they're, you know, that are giving them money now. And, and, but we, we've, but we've tried that, Carl. We, we tried that with McCain Feingold. We, you know, we, we've seen the effects of the Citizens Unite. We've seen the Supreme Court interventions on some of this. And it seems that every time we come up with a new, you know, campaign finance law, a la McCain-Feingold, it seems to make the problem worse and more divisive than better. Right. Well, you know, there's there's a very fine dynamic in all this. It's going to take it's going to take time, but the court will change at some point. Maybe for, in my mind, the better. Maybe for the worse. But the court is going to change. And the Congress will change eventually, and maybe get moderate so that two people no. can but get together. Bob Lane first. Well, you know, one of the realities is is that, that you know, Priebus, the chairman of the Republican Party, he doesn't have one tenth the amount of money that the Club for right. Growth right. and the Senate Committee right. and the Heritage Foundation, you know, uh, with the former senator from South Carolina, all that money. Is, is not going where the Republicans want it to go most of the time. It's going to their these these lunatic groups, you know, in effect, in, right. in, in my view. Yeah. The people who are way to the right and who aren't willing to negotiate yes. once they get into Congress and they just say, no, 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 no. Right. And it's, it's, it's destructive. But it's funny, Alan Moore, you know, when we talk about the money being thrown around, in, in particularly in the Republican Party today, and we've seen it in the Democratic Party before, in the Republican Party today we see that the establishment is is that old money, that traditional money, that money that goes to political uh, favors and political establishment. At the same time, when you see the Koch brothers throwing literally tens of millions of dollars into an election cycle, there's money there, but they're not considered establishment. There's almost a level of hypocrisy here. I, I don't. That, that's why I, I am very uncomfortable with uh, with these terms. Um, there's a lot of money sloshing around. There's a lot of accusations about how big money controls everything. Well, I don't see it happening. It didn't happen in the last presidential election. Big money makes a difference. Big money can affect the some races, but uh, uh, we we saw hundreds of millions of dollars be spent uh, the last go around with uh, uh, in, in a fairly organized way. Um, by some of the Carl Rove organizations with very little to show for it. In the meantime, you got voters out there, and the, 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 the Tea Party movement was not a big money proposition. It was a big anger 
proposition. People were ticked off. They started to come together in small informal groups. They organized themselves. They rose up. They got people to go out and vote, volunteer, be active. And lo and behold, they elected a whole bunch of people, not on a platform of let's do it this way, but let's stop doing just about everything we were doing and throw those bums out. So we have these cycles. And, and you know, we like to blame this thing or that thing and look for a simple answer. We like to, to blame the Supreme Court for Citizens United. Believe me, Citizens United case so far has had very, very, very little impact, if any. People were worried that corporations were going to throw big money into campaigns. Corporations don't. Why don't they? Because they don't want to trigger boycotts and anger against them. Individuals, even individuals, if they're associated with a particular company or companies that lends itself to a boycott, they're super careful. Um, and, uh, and, but hedge fund managers or guys that just are wealthy and with, with corporations that don't have a consumer product that you might be able to boycott, those are the guys who can put big money in. And we got big money on the left. We got big money on the right. We got some of this money uh, can have effects in a given race, but I don't see any big trend that's moving us in one way or the other or some particular group that's suddenly accumulating this massive power. It's a very, very diverse country we have with lots of different players and lots of surprises every time around. Carl Tubin? You also have to remember that in 2012, there was big money on the Democratic side, and that was mainly, other others too, but mainly the Obama campaign. I mean, they rose a ton of money, and, and some of it was used very effectively. He got, he got to win. Uh, looking back on it, some of it could have gone to some congressional candidates and some Senate candidates. It might have been very helpful, but they didn't. Did he scrap? The, that um, infrastructure that he created has um, been asked to uh, to stop fundraising this past week. In fact, they said they would not fundraise between now and November because they want the money that they were trying to get to go to other candidates. So that's something that Ryan so needs to be doing and saying, yeah. look, you guys need to stop fundraising and stop taking money from one and let us handle this and start funneling it the way we want to be doing but it. But in that instance, you've got a McCain-Feingold issue, possibly. Am I, am I wrong in that, Alan? Well, I think what, what, what Denise is talking about is, is a suggested direction of private money. They can't receive it. But that doesn't mean they have to stand aside like a potted plant and say nothing and do nothing. They can, they can encourage people to do this and that. This is, this is sort of the new thing that's going on. We, you got individuals willing to spend a lot of money. Where do they spend it? Well, they hire some advisors to manage it. And then those people talk to a bunch of other people. And then they say, hey, how about if we do this? How about if we do that? There, there are rules against coordinating with a particular campaign that are still, that are still in place. But you got smart people who know this stuff, so they talk amongst themselves, and they got it about 95% right And uh, in, in terms of uh, they want to comply with the law, but also direct where there will be the most good for the most people uh, from the party standpoint. But, by the way, I want on the record, I did not ask a single member of this roundtable to handicap any of these races, because I come to one conclusion. When we handicap these races, we <laughs> suck at this. So I'm just going to, I'm going to forego the embarrassment of next week going, wow, didn't see that coming. Tired of it. Thank you on behalf of all of us. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, 
We're going to talk about uh, the situation at the New York Times. Is it a matter of female executive discrimination, or did the management at the Times fire a bad manager? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three and a half minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, this is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio, and you can join the discussion. You can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, 877-662-3713. Or you can tweet your questions to us at Back Room Politic on Twitter, or you can email your questions at Justin at backroompolitics.org. Uh, we're going to change pace a little bit. We're going to talk about the situation, the interesting situation at the New York Times. There has been a uh, big, big management shift over at uh, the New York Times, which has gotten a lot of attention, uh, where over the weekend, I guess it was over the weekend, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, manage, management, the executive management over at the uh, the New York Times came out and basically fired um, their uh, their executive editor, um, Jill, Jill Abramson. Jill, Jill Abramson. Jill Abramson. Uh, it was Friday. Friday was it Friday? Yeah. Uh, her name was on the masthead on Sunday. On Monday, it was changed. Uh, interesting, interesting situation with with Abramson. Uh, she was looked at as a new voice, a new figure, a new possible direction for the Times. Uh, she was largely respected from what all indications were when she was first announced as uh, executive editor, but something apparently happened. There are several reports coming out that say that part of her departure from the New York Times was based on the fact that she herself in, uh, approached the ownership and said that, hey, I'm not making as much as my predecessors, and this is an equality issue, and I want to be on the same level as, as everybody else that served in this position. Uh, other reports have come out saying that she had lost confidence in her newsroom and her editorial board. So now this becomes a question. Was Abramson, and again, some of this will be speculation, but it brings up a very, very unique question of, this is a fine line between was she discriminated against, was she equal in the eyes as a female, or was she in fact fired for non-performance? I want to start with our only female here, <laughs> Denise Kraft. Give us the answer to Denise, oh, yeah. Denise, no, 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 I'm not, we're not searching for answers. It's a debate show. We debate this stuff. Denise, what's your take? I think this is a very messy situation, and the answer is probably somewhere in between. Um, there... Uh, one way to measure equality is by salary, and that is something that has been talked about for years now. I mean, you had the Equal Rights Act, you had other um, equal pay uh, amendments, and when you hear that a woman is not getting paid the same amount that her uh, male counterpart is, then yes, there are a lot of questions that should be asked about that. And how did you make that salary determination, and was it based off of her sex? And if it was, then why did you make that determination? I mean. In the past, the determination was made that well, men should get more because well, they have a family and they, you know, they, they have extra expenses that women don't have. But well, in an age where, for example, I have a stay-at-home husband, I have expenses, so you know, I appreciate the fact that I'd like to be paid just as much as the man or my male equivalent. So there's the first one, and the second it deals with the firing it, itself and the, the rather muddy, and, I, and I'm going to use the word muddy because it just looks like everybody is slinging dirt right now uh, about how it happened. Um, I would like to believe that we're in a situation where somebody was fired because she was a bad manager. 
But if it was fired because she asked the question of, you know, how much am I getting paid, then, yeah, I do have a little problem about this. Go ahead, Alan Moore. And I've done some reading about this. The, The publisher has said, and hopefully we can get all the facts, that this was not about pay. Here's a little history. She got hired for the top editorial job at the New York Times, first woman ever for that job. There's only one person. It's not like you have a comparable, equal peer. Did she get as much as her predecessor? The question, the, the answer that the publisher has given now publicly is that, that when you add in her bonuses and her stock grants, she, had, she was getting paid more. This is not about pay. Oftentimes it is about pay. Unfortunately, this, this pay issue became a diversion because of a New Yorker story that came out said it's about pay. She did hire a lawyer to represent her on this pay issue. That's a provocative act if you're the executive editor and you're dealing with with the publisher, but, uh, but, but that's not pay per se, and I don't know whether that came into it. The, the, the two issues that seem to have made the most difference are she pissed people off right and left in the newsroom and was getting some counseling for her management style. That's not unique in the, the world of business, but, but that speaks to the question of whether she's the leader. She's a great writer. She's a great reporter. She's written books. No question about that. That doesn't mean you're, you can make it as the top person. The other issue and the thing that apparently clinched it was that she had decided that she was going to hire a co managing editor underneath her and had led, according to the reports, the senior management to believe that that decision had been cleared with the other managing editor and a third senior person in the, in the, the managerial operation, and it had not, apparently. So it's reported. So what you've got is somebody who's, in, in the eyes of management, apparently, struggling in the role and then took an action about which she was arguably and reportedly somewhat deceptive. So that suggests, okay, we're going to act, we're going to act now. Did they handle it very well? No. No. But I I do want to, you know, a lot of information is being put out by uh, the New Yorker's uh, Ken Alouetta, who has wrote a series of blog posts titled Why Jill Abramson Was Fired. Uh, a lot of these same instances were cited, but, and, but it, it, those who work in journalism, those who worked at the Times, I talked to a friend of mine uh, yesterday who did some time at the New York Times under Jill Abramson for a little bit, and said, look, she is a very demanding executive. The word he used was, she could be at times pushy. Ken Alouetta points that out, says, look, she was pushy with her staff, she was pushy with executive management, and just was very aggressive in her management style. Denise Crowley. Okay, but Mike, here's my question. If you took the fact that she was female out and put a man in that, would you be calling a man pushy? I mean, men no, are there are some other choice words that we yeah, don't use. Yeah, you call them an a-hole. Yeah, you call them an a-hole. You call them a dick. You call them a lot of words. 
But would you fire him for this? Absolutely and, and you would. You don't you can't say you would or wouldn't. But we don't know enough. No, you don't know enough. But this has been a very interesting couple of months talking about this. I mean, I have to reflect on the fact that the Girl Scouts um, just came out with a campaign. It, it, they've got these little buttons with the word bossy on it crossed out because they want to stop little girls being called bossy because they view it as sexist. I mean, it, it, we're, we're, we're still working through an environment of are men and women um, equal but, but and perceived but, to be but equal? But at the same time, though, Denise, I, I mean, it has been largely reported in several circles, including Ken Alouette's uh, reporting, that she, Mark Thompson, the CEO of the New York Times companies, she, was, she had already clashed many times with her CEO over the direction of the paper, over what her vision was versus the vision of the CEO. In my book, that's not, you, you could be a male and do that and be fired. You could be a female and do that and be fired. I mean, there's, there's a fine line. Now, I am not condoning the fact that, you know, is there a little bit of a feminine bias here? There may be. I mean, she, I, I mean, she, has been seen as I, I don't I hate using this term, but as a dragon lady, she is a tough, very demanding boss. Wow, I, that's I, a horrible I, thing I, to call. I didn't call her that. When we I'm just start when we when we go down this name calling. Uh, I'm not calling her that. I'm not whoever, saying she was. Whoever is, she's the B word, or she's. Whether it's bossy or another word, or a dragon lady, or impossible, and but that lends itself to no, 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 let Listen to me. So there is one executive editor of the New York Times. The New York Times, like most big newspapers, is hemorrhaging money. They're trying to catch up with the modern times. They're trying to go digital. They're trying to be more creative. They're trying to find paths of revenue. They need smart editorial as well as business people. They took a risk with her because as they do every time with an executive editor who's a reporter and editor because you never know what kind of top leader you're going to get be it male or female they by by going with a woman and here's my great fear about this whole story and the and the and the lingering effects of it it will make give people unneeded unwanted unfortunate second thoughts about promoting a woman to the top. And I hate that idea. We need to be able to promote females equally and we need to be able to replace them equally and not suddenly throw out some charges that this is an attack on women. Because the more we do that and feed that notion, the less likely the boards and chairs and publishers are going to think, gee, do we want to risk it? It's always a risk when we move somebody to that top position. What we don't want is to move a woman in, and then when we decide it doesn't work and we're going to move her out, we've got to take unmitigated crap for being somehow sexist. That's my fear here. I don't know what happened, but from everything I've looked at, that although they didn't handle the, the, the rollout very well, it's always difficult to, to, to roll somebody who's in a, in a, in a highly public job. Carl, Carl Tubin. The interesting thing from what I've read is, in her is that she was like this in the positions that she was in before. And they knew that. And, and, and they promoted her anyway. So it, 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 that might have been a part of it, but there had to be some other things as we've been discussing 
that are that are uh, that are there. The other thing is, is that an article in the New York Times yesterday, I believe, uh, talked about the fact the New York Times reported this that in the newsroom they're now talking about wage disparity, whether that was the crux of the matter or not. Now it's it's an open. That, well, believe me, believe me, in any place like the Times, that's not going to be a new thing. Yeah. Everybody wants to know what's so what everybody else is making. What are they making? Why are they making this? How do I? Which is why management, in, in, especially in enterprises but like Bob, that, you, wants to keep that information secret. But, Bob, you, you dealt with. You know, you dealt with issues of pay disparity over at NBC. I mean, I remember Judy Woodruff getting the weekend anchoring on um, on NBC Nightly News. A lot of people said that she wasn't compensated to a level that was commensurate with her male colleagues. And we come to find out that Judy Woodruff, in fact, was compensated at an equal level, but there was a sense of feminism feminism there. This is not a new situation. It's something that the media has had to deal with, media ownership has had to deal with for a long time, going back to your days at NBC. Well, yeah, I, it, listen, this is not a new discussion. No. This is no. not a new debate. And it's, it's just what you're going to... Until we can get to the point where sex is not a question of belonging in a position or not, it's just a matter of, do you have the talent to do the job? And it's, we're moving in that direction, but it always takes some time, and it's easy. It's easy when you have a situation where it's a woman who got knocked off. You know, fine. So suddenly it's easy to say, oh, it's, it's, it's sexist. It's, it, it may well be that there's some of that there. It's more likely that she wasn't doing the job they wanted. Now, but that's just human nature. And if she's not doing the job, then she has to go. But Denise, but, but hold, hold, hold I guess but, let me let me talk about my concern though. I mean, you're talking about people needing to go, and Alan talks about his concern that, you know, people may not hire women because of this issue. My concern is that women may not go for these jobs because they're going to look at it and say, "Hey, I'm not wanted, and why do I want to be in an environment that I'm not wanted in?" But but I, but I, I well, look, I, there's a woman running General General Motors, General Motors yeah, and she's taking a lot of heat. She manages to stay in sync with her board. She manages to stay in sync with her stockholders, which are truly her her her, her, her management. And she's done a good. I mean, you and look the at jury Carly is out on her. She's only just gotten here. Yeah, and, and, and you, but you look at but Carly Fiorina, and she's got the biggest mess you ever saw. But you look at Carly Fiorina, another fired. Time, yeah. fired. But look at why she was fired. There were there was stock tips. There were questionable business practices. I, 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 I think part of it is, and I'm not saying that, that, that the fact that women won't want to go, women are going to continue, just as minorities would continue, just as any demographic would continue to go to these leadership positions. My concern is, is not so much that women or minorities or e e even, even white males are judged differently from their predecessors, or they're ju judged differently because they don't necessarily agree, it, it, and then it's really quick to pull the trigger on, oh, well, that was sexist. It makes for great press in the media. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up the GM situation. I thought, and, and I don't know how you felt, but as a person who has helped prepare people for hearings, I thought they did a lousy job with her. 
she should have had with her at the table some of the people who were who were partly responsible for what happened, but, so that she could turn to them and say, you know, you want to. I want to disagree with you on this, Carl. I want to say right now, watching Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, literally go up front solo to the committee, send a message saying, I'm not a female. I'm not a male, I'm not white, I'm not Chinese, I'm not Hispanic, I'm not black. I am the CEO of General Motors. The buck stops with me. Was her performance solid? Eh, jury's still out on that. And quite frankly, I don't think that she really hit the nail on the head that she could have done. Okay? That's any executive. I've seen, I've seen executive. I go back and look at the VP, the Deepwater Horizon and the CEO of BP up on the hill. Horrible presentation. So it's not a matter of sex. It's a matter of that's a matter of just general preparedness. That's simple. Uh, let me let me also going back to uh, to Joe Abramson. She uh, she gave the commencement speech at Wake Forest yesterday, and of course all of them. Which I thought was gutsy. Yeah, I thought that was very gutsy. And and, and she got up there and uh, she said, you know, my father said that, you know, when you fail at something, it's do you have the the power. To, to rise above it. And then she looked at the crowd and said, look, everyone has failed at different things. She said, I'm in the same boat that you're in. And then she said, how many of you have been dumped? How many of you have, have failed a test which you thought you ought, to, you ought to pass? And she gave all these different things, which I thought was, was great because you know, she, she used herself as an example but tried to try to uh, uh, teach them a little bit about what happens when you when you fall down and you've got to get up and just move. Keep Did he's crap. And I like that part of the speech yeah. because, you know, it's a leadership learning tool that I don't think that most women have the opportunity of learning from. I mean, you may have been dumped from a boyfriend, you may have had other things, but when you are dumped in a high profile, oh my goodness, you're on the front page of every newspaper, that puts it in a different category. And I, the more women we have that unfortunately have to go through this type of a circumstance, the more leaders you're going to have out there that people, the younger generation, can go in and say, hey, how did that make you feel and what do you think you could have done differently to make sure that, you know, it, A, didn't happen, or B, you know, what did you do after that that made you more successful in the interim? Yeah, uh, I I. I, I uh, noted that that uh, she gave the speech and how what she said and what was reported. I thought she did a good job. I don't think it showed her showed particular guts to do it. I would have been surprised if she had bailed because it was so visible. It would have been it would have been true cowardice had she stepped down. She had a a new message to 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 take, and you did not hear her complaining about management or anything like that. Which which I think is was a smart, but also you know may also hit at, at, at the fact that. She knows more than she wants to say about exactly what 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 happened to her, but she took her experience and used it, I think, in a in a, in a useful way. and productive way. I do wish that I'm glad as I was that she was able to speak. I, I still wish, and we talked I talked about it last week that Condoleezza Rice and Christine Lagarde and the former chancellor of of the University of California system had not been, if you will, pressured not to appear. I think we need to hear all voices, women and men. 
Um, Agreed. Especially the controversial. Well, you know, the funny thing about it is, you know, you, you look at, uh, is it Dean Beckett, who's now the executive editor, formerly the managing editor, who took over the helm after Abramson was fired. Dean Beckett privately had said through many sources she was hard to work with. But at the same time, publicly, he said, and I quote, he praised Miss Abramson for teaching him, quote, again, the value of great ambition. There's no question Jill Abramson is a very ambitious journalist, and she's a very ambitious executive in journalism. Is that ne- That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not exactly a trait that you find disqualifying, whether it's male or female. But don't you want that? I mean, yes. that's what you want. Yes. Right. Exactly. But going back to Alan's point, though, if I'm the ownership... Of of the New York Times, you know, if if I'm if I'm Salzberger, you know, the chief executive, I'm looking at I'm hemorrhaging money. I'm hemorrhaging money left and right. I'm trying to really keep the existence of this paper, the old gray lady, going. We're going to have to make some concessions. These are business decisions, not necessarily journalistic decisions. That's that's always been a fight in journalism, Bob. Well, right now in journalism, I mean, you can I can imagine. There must be people all over the country in journalism saying, I'm probably going to get fired because the whole damn thing's going to fall apart. The reality is, newspapers are in, ba- are in very trouble. deep trouble. Very and you can understand why. Because there's so many other outlets. Now, unfortunately, uh, most so many of those outlets are you know, kind of weird and crazy and whatnot, and they're not maybe as responsible as newspapers. But the fact of the matter is, the newspaper business is in very serious straits. And it's, it's not surprising to me that uh, management, ownership, you know, uh, are, as, they, as they struggle and try to figure out what to do, you know, they're going they may, it may be the biggest mistake they could have possibly made to fire her. And they may not have known it and they may have figured it out. It may be that they were right, it may be they were wrong, we won't know for a while. But the fact of the matter is, their industry, the industry of the newspaper is in deep trouble. And that's unfortunate because, you know, there's so much of the of the uh, of the media uh, is so um, rigid in its point of view that we're not getting as much information. We're getting more opinion than we might need. Well, that's a true story. The other the other thing is is that <clears throat> she had made it a point to uh, to appoint women, some women, to places in the editorial board that. That hadn't been there before, and uh, which you know, which I thought was a good thing. So absolutely, I mean, I you know, when I was chief counsel at Merritt, I brought in people that didn't look like the other lawyers. I brought in African Americans, Hispanics, Asians. I mean, and the reason I did it was because I wanted people with a different voice and a different viewpoint. They were all equally competent. Trust me, I, I put them through the rigor to make sure they were all good. But by bringing in people that are different, you get a wider perspective. And yeah, you, you fundamentally know. that is important, particularly yeah. in journalism. Right. Right. Well, it, 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 every time you bring in a new CEO of anything, it's a crapshoot. Um, whether it's the the, the the new woman CEO at GM who spent 30 some years in the company, or whether it was Ford Motor Company bringing in a guy from Boeing who'd never been in the auto industry to come and take over. It's, 
it's always a crapshoot because until you're actually in the job running things, no one knows for sure how it's going to work out, and no one knows what the world is going to throw your way. Um, and uh, if, if, the, if, if, the, if the woman at GM should, should succeed or fail, it may be because of or in spite of uh, this, this r- r- significant scandal um, and $35 million fine, maximum U.S. government fine for failing uh, to report um, these these problems with ignition switches. So she, it, it may make her, just like with a, being a president, we never know. It's a crapshoot. And, 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 and people who could succeed on, in certain circumstances may fail in others and, and, and vice versa. So we should never be surprised when somebody who becomes the CEO or the head of an organization, be they male, female, young or old, um, in the industry, outside the industry, doesn't work out. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean they fail at everything they do. It means that it's not what the, the, the organization needs in the minds of the people who have the power to decide. Um, but there's always a risk. And I just, as I said before, I just hope that there's no negative residue here. It's like, oh, geez, I would love to promote this woman, but if she doesn't work out and we have to fire her, we're going to have to deal with all this other crap, all this, uh, all these accusations. And, and I, I hope that's not what occurs. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to keep an eye on this story, obviously, as it develops. But when we come back, we're going to have the head of the International Legal Foundation, Jennifer Smith, will be talking about the right to legal counsel globally and the politics behind the right to legal counsel. When we come back, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining us right now on the, uh, on the line from New York City, she is the Executive Director of the International Legal Foundation. She is Ms. Jennifer Smith. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, th- thanks, thanks a lot. Hey, Jennifer, first of all, before we get into, in, into you know, the, the, the general questions, tell us a little bit about the mission of the International Legal Foundation. What does ILF do? Where are you guys? And, and how are you guys bringing some of your issues to uh, international attention? Sure, absolutely. Well, the International Legal Foundation, we're a nonprofit that uh, was established in 2001 in New York. And we work globally. We're the leading global advocate for the right to counsel for the poor. We work specifically in post-conflict and transitional countries, helping them to establish effective criminal legal aid systems that provide criminal defense services to the poor. Uh, It's it's definitely a critical um, but under-addressed human right and something that we're we're very passionate about. When it was founded in 2001, the issue was uh, really unaddressed, um, particularly in post-conflict settings. More and more there's recognition of the issue, but not a lot of uh, organizations that focus on it and have the technical expertise to help. You know, Jennifer, you know, when we talk about the, the American legal system, we're familiar with our Miranda rights. We're all familiar with our right to legal counsel. Heck, you can watch Law and Order and see that. But when, when we look at the other superpower, we look at a superpower like China, for example, it, it seems that that's a basic human right that they don't necessarily get and that Beijing's not really willing to put forward, or is it? Well, it, it's, it's an interesting issue. I mean, I think what's interesting about it is that Almost all governments actually provide for this right in law, and in fact, it is an international. It, it is an in international law. The International Covenant on uh, Civil and Political Rights provides for this right, and it's one that's been um, adopted by most countries. But unfortunately, it's ignored in practice for many reasons. Um, in in some cases, like in China, it may be an actual fear of what a growing number of defense lawyers will do, polit- uh, particularly in political cases. Um, in, in, but in, in most countries, I think it's just uh, a lack of awareness, uh, a focus on the issue, or just knowledge about how to actually develop effective systems. Is, is this a situation where when you enter into a country, like I know you have uh, a very solid presence in the West Bank where there's been question of the Israeli government offering legal counsel up to uh, poor Palestinians that might be accused. Is, is this something that you're seeing, you're getting resistance from the host nations? Is it something that you're getting cooperation from? Uh, and how is that coming about with you all? Um, you know, I think it's a complicated issue. I think generally speaking in the countries in which we work, um, and, and they are some of the most difficult environments. They're countries that are emerging from war, um, countries that are in transition, changing governments. And so, uh, you know, it, there in a lot of cases is no history of actually providing this service in any effective way. In Afghanistan um, in, in 2003, when we first established a public defender office, um, there really was no right to counsel for the poor at all. Lawyers had never appeared in court on, the, on behalf of the accused. There were only 200 lawyers in the whole country. And so it was something that we had to really work and develop incrementally and raise awareness of governments about what it is and what it meant. 
Um, you know, in Palestine, I think there is more awareness in the West Bank, more awareness of what it means. There are certainly more lawyers. Um, but the ability to provide it, this service in an effective way is really lacking. And I think what's unique about what we do as well is we're working to build local capacity. So in the West Bank, we're actually working to build the domestic legal aid system. We're not actually working on, and there is there are military courts um, um, where um, they may have uh, people may have lawyers. Um, if you're talking about political crimes, crimes um, that that may occur in Israel as well. But we're working, at, you know, in the local justice system, helping to build it, helping to strengthen it. Uh, Jennifer, you know, when we when we talk about this, are you finding that there that the political barriers are much more of a challenge than the legal barriers in the areas that you're working in? Um, you know, I, I I don't. I generally speaking, um, I think it's mainly legal barriers. Um, obviously, there are politics um, that are involved whenever you're talking about what are some of the really gravest human rights abuses that governments face. I mean, we're talking about when people do not have access to counsel, um, they will be arbitrarily detained. They will be detained for months or years. Um, and, and this is something that only access to counsel can really help to prevent over the long term. People will be tortured. Um, and Amnesty International recently came out with a report saying that 30 years after the UN adopted the Convention Against Torture, torture or other ill treatment continues in most countries. Um, you know, people will be wrongfully convicted, and this is something I think that, that countries don't always want to admit. And I think, um, you know, are really um, mostly ignorant about the fact that, you know, just providing prompt access to qualified lawyers can help to turn this around. Um, and that's, that's really what we're trying to teach and, and really build these systems from the ground up. When, when, when you look at the international community, are you getting support from organizations such as the UN High Commission on Human Rights? Absolutely. I, I think you know, one, of, one of the strengths and one of the things that we've started to do more and more after the few years, last few years is to really work on our global advocacy efforts and, and to align um, both uh, you know, the work of the United Nations, the work of civil society, the work of uh, the international community, and countries, um, and, and really, you know, bring forward how critical this issue is. Um, you know, recently we were involved in over the last few years in, in drafting what um, something that was just recently adopted by the UN uh, General Assembly at the end of 2012, a new international law on the right to legal aid uh, in criminal justice systems. And this was a huge, huge step forward uh, because although the right is referenced. Um, in you know other things like I mentioned the ICCPR um, earlier, it is not explicitly discussed or talked about or in practice you know discussed how how what states have to do to ensure this right. So I think there's a tremendous amount of support, and I think what's necessary is really just coming together, focusing uh, the international community on how critical this right is and how we have to take action immediately uh, to stop more abuses from happening. Has, has, the, has the Department of Justice or the U.S. government through other organizations such as, like, let's say, the Agency for International Development, are, are, have they been supportive? Have they been proactive in supporting your cause? The U.S. has been absolutely supportive, and not just the U.S. I think a lot of countries um, over the last uh, a few years have really 
um, started to support more and more, not just the building of justice systems. I think there is a general recognition that you need strong, effective justice systems to have stable countries throughout the world and to, to you know, it's, it's in our own national interest as well to build these systems. But I think the balance is, is what um, people are recognizing more and more, that if you go into a country and just work on building strong police systems, building the courts, building prosecution, you're actually incur encouraging violations of human rights because there is no counterbalance. There is no strong proactive defense that can ensure that the rights of the accused are protected. So we have um, received funding you know, from, from the U.S. government, from other governments around the world. Uh, the Department of Justice, I think, has, has been very supportive, and, and we were happy that they supported uh, the adoption of the U.N. principles and guidelines on access to legal aid and criminal justice systems. Um, Attorney General Holder ma gave a speech in 2012 before the United Nations about how important this was and the recognition in the U.S. about how critical this service is. And I think what's interesting as well is just the parallel. Last year was the 50th anniversary of Gideon versus Wainwright, the Seminole Rights Council case in the U.S. And at the time, in going to a lot of these anniversary events, what struck me most, I think, was not that we were celebrating and saying, you know, look how great we are, we're doing so well, but there's a crisis in indigent defense in the U.S. And if we can say that here, you can just imagine how grave the problem is throughout the world. Now, we, we, we know that you focus around the world. you have a domestic component as well? No, actually, we only work, um, we only work in, in, uh, in around the world. We work globally. So it's really our priorities in post-conflict and transitional countries and developing these systems where they either don't exist or are completely ineffective. But we do absolutely bring in, you know, U.S. experiences, U.S. lessons learned, U.S. expertise, and I think a unique part of our program is that we often bring in U.S. public defenders. We bring them in from other countries as well, but many of them are U.S. public defenders that volunteer in the countries in which we work. They actually volunteer their time. They take leaves of absence from their job and work side-by-side side with the lawyers in the countries that we're training and mentor them case-by-case, day-by-day in court. It's a really unique aspect of our, of our work. It's been hugely successful in actually developing cultures of, of defense in places like Afghanistan, Nepal and the West Bank, um, and incrementally getting the courts to actually listen to what the lawyers are saying and implement the law. Alan so, Moore. So that's, I'm sorry? No, no, Alan Moore's got a question. Uh, I, I, I have a question. This is Alan Moore. Um, a question about some of the challenges you face in these countries, not just institutionally and governmentally, but resource-wise, and then if you could expand even more on this question of of staffing, I can I get the part about Americans or Westerners going to volunteer, but but I would guess that there's also in a in in the societies or cultures where there's no tradition of this, no history, that people who are lawyers are gonna are are gonna be nervous about becoming the defenders of of accused criminals in cultures where the 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 public doesn't understand. So what kinds of, in addition to resources uh, of financial, um, what kind of challenges are there in recruiting locals? Are there, are, are there people willing to jump in and take this on? 
You know, that's a great question, and I think that it, that is a tremendous challenge. Oftentimes when we first do go into the countries in which we work, lawyers have no experience. You know, and, and obviously in some countries there may not be many lawyers either, which is, you know, a whole other challenge in terms of resources. But the lawyers that there are often not accustomed to defending the accused and certainly not zealously actually challenging what the prosecutor is saying. Um, and looking at the elements of the crime and, and, and figuring out if there is a defense. Um, and it's something that we have found that incrementally changes as lawyers become more experienced and actually start to do the work. It's not something that they've learned traditionally in the law schools that they may have. It's not something that um, they've learned in their law practices. So it is very incremental. And, and certainly um, we will find, and when we're interviewing lawyers to hire, we'll, we'll find many of them who say, you know, I can't do this. These people are absolutely guilty. And so it's not necessarily a preclusion to hiring someone that they would, would say, you know, oh, you know, this person absolutely, you know, if they're charged with, this woman is charged with adultery in Afghanistan, she's guilty. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, it it's that we're, we're looking um, we're looking for that ability to, to analyze, the ability to change their mind. Um, it's the slowest process, but the most critical to, to our efforts is actually being able to change the mindset of the lawyers themselves and get them to understand that they have to fight for justice and that innocent people are charged with crimes and that people shouldn't be just in jail languishing for years on end. Where, Jennifer, where, I mean, we talk about the areas of conflict and, and those areas continue to get broader and broader. We've seen uh, some judicial questions brought out in the uh, conflict between Russia and the Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, we talk about the obvious points, Syria, the Gaza Strip. Are there other hotbed issues that don't necessarily garner the, the, the international media and their attention that you guys are focused on that maybe the word should get out? Absolutely. I think, you know, our biggest concerns, and, and those, those places are concerns, um, and in some ways, though, they're, they're places where um, legal aid systems did have the chance to develop, but we, we are obviously very concerned in some ways about what is happening during the crisis and the fact that oftentimes during crisis, during conflict, there's a suspension of basic rights of due process, and people are arbitrarily detained and tried without lawyer, um, and, and that, that a lot of, of very, very serious violations can occur. Um, but there's also countries that I think, you know, people just don't think about or don't think about what's happening with these issues in those places. And I think South Sudan is a good example. We're very, very concerned about the fact that they have a death penalty there, that there's over 100 people on death row, and there is no legal aid system. There's no way to provide them with counsel. Um, and you can just imagine, um, you know, how, how terrifying that situation is. You know, if you think about um, the rise of the Innocence Project in the U.S. and the fact that even today, um, you know, they learn about people who are on death row or even have been executed uh, and who have been wrongfully convicted. And certainly in countries like South Sudan where there's just a lack of resources or any ability of the police to adequately investigate a case, no ability of the accused to actually defend themselves, um, and, and what's happening. So the magnitude of the crisis, I think, is tremendous, particularly in, in situations like that, in situations like Myanmar, um, where also there, there really is no legal aid system and people are being charged and detained um, every single day. Um, so, so, you know, bringing the attention to this issue, I think, is of, of uh, really something that we're focused on. Um, we, 
after the adoption of the principles and guidelines, we looked at how we could bring the international community together, how we could bring countries together all over the world. And we're doing that by um, co-hosting um, and actually spearheading this international conference in South Africa next month, at the end of next month, that will bring together many of these countries at the highest levels um, and also the providers themselves to learn from each other and to understand why they need to take immediate action. Bob Lyons question for Jennifer yeah. Smith. Jennifer, you uh, obviously have a, you're, you're, you're involved in many countries where you have a government which is autocratic, uh, determined to stay in power, doesn't want anything to get in the way of what they want to do. Uh, how are you able to operate, or are you able to operate in so many of those countries in Asia, Africa, uh, that uh, don't want to have an operation like yourselves even exist in your country? Well, I think that, you know, really key to this is helping governments to understand, number one, it, it's enshrined in their laws. This is something that we're not trying to change what their laws say. This is there, and so it's something that has to be implemented in practice. I think number two, showing that a strong right to counsel and a balanced system actually strengthens um, governments. It strengthens people's confidence uh, in the justice system, transparency of the justice system. You know, if you think about instability, it's often in places where people do lose confidence um, in, you know, ideals of fairness or justice. The Arab Spring, you know, the spark of the Arab Spring was in Tunisia where a street vendor set himself on fire because of the arbitrary actions of a government official. This is what happens when people don't feel like there's anywhere that they can go and be heard. And a defense lawyer, the basic role, the basic obligation of a defense lawyer is to protect the rights of their client and to ensure that they're heard by the court. Jennifer, is, is there a way that, uh, that the, the general public can gain awareness on the subject, even financially support the ILF? Absolutely. Please visit us on our website. It's vilf.org, um, and you'll see that there's regular news that we post about the work that we're doing. We're also on social media um, on Facebook, and uh, we'll be sending out, I think, a lot of information also in the lead-up and after South Africa about what governments are doing to change this. Um, but certainly we welcome any kind of involvement, any kind of support. Well, Jennifer Smith, the Executive Director of the International Legal Foundation. Jennifer, thanks for joining us, uh, and please come back and join us again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Uh, now is time for my favorite part of the show. It's time for Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the innuendo, buzz, rumors, and stuff we just didn't cover on the show this week. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Today... There are elections in at least a half dozen states. We were talking about it earlier today. It's going to be uh, you know, tomorrow, next day, we'll know what the results are. People will start uh, you know, deciding what it means. But it's, it's, we're in primary season. This is one of the most important times that American citizens can get out and do something useful. That is, say what they want their representatives in various levels of government to be doing. I hope everybody's voting, and I hope that, uh, that we, on both parties, are electing the kind of people who we ought to be electing or nominating, because we need the very best of our people 
to be in our legislators and our Congress because, my golly, it ain't working right now in a lot of places. Interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, 50 years ago, um, Lyndon Johnson was uh, really gaining momentum uh, as president. Uh, we've talked uh, in, in the past about the Civil Rights Act, um, which really got things started uh, in, the, in the Great Society programs, the War on Poverty. But, but from there, 65 and 60, 64, 65, um, we saw Medicare, health care for the elderly, Medicaid, uh, health care for the poor, food stamps, uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, a federal, a big boost in federal aid for uh, secondary schools, Head Start got started, um, college uh, grants and loans began to move forward in a big way, some consumer legislation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was really a remarkable history of expanded government service. The government was fairly flush in those early years, and uh, and then we got we got immersed in Vietnam. Today, the you know we we, we spend uh, about 800 billion dollars per year uh, to help the poor, and and uh, and yet some of what we spend feeds the anger about the role of government. It's just interesting to reflect on that. Uh, Remarkable legacy that uh, that is still controversial. Denise Crap, tell me a story. Monday's Memorial Day, and I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who served. Very good, nice call. Carl Tobin, tell me a story. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to go back a little bit. Wait, 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 wait. How far back? Jerry Ford. All right, <laughs> close enough. Good uh, for you. Uh, when I worked for 20th Century Fox. Uh, Jared Ford, Jerry Ford came on the board, and the uh, chairman of Fox at the time told my boss that Jerry's interested in helping us in Washington. So my boss called me and gave me a name of a person in Jerry Ford's office, who I called, and we arranged a weekly phone call. And I would, during the week, decide you know what were the, we would Ray Bennett and I would decide what were the issues and all that. And my first call to Jerry Ford was very sort of reminiscent as to what we're going through today. <clears throat> and he said, uh, I introduced myself and we talked, and he said, now, Carl, I will approach anybody except for the born-agains. I don't want to have anything to do with them. But anybody in the establishment Republican Party, I would be glad, and others, I would be glad to help with. Mindset, what we were saying, that these things go in cycles. Right. And the cycle changes eventually. Very good. Very good. Hey, uh, for those who have not seen, there's a little bit of a shifting going on in the Obama administration. The big news coming out within the past uh, 72 hours, it looks like uh, Julian Castro, the mayor of San Antonio, will be taking over as Secretary of Health and or Secretary of Housing and Urban Development otherwise known as HUD. It is a kind of a little bit of a shocker in the Democratic communities. A lot of people thought he would have been best serving the party as continuing in the Texas uh, mayoral cycles down in San Antonio. However, Democrats at the uh, DNC are saying this is a smart move. He gets into Washington, gets into the circles, makes him very attractive for 2016. By the way, he's going to be replacing Sean Donovan. 
a Chicago insider, uh, former housing boss, and, by the way, he's taking over OMB. Interesting pick. So, with that, I'm going to say on behalf of Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Denise Krep, Carl Tubin, I am your moderator and host. I am Radio Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday, same time, here on Blog Talk Radio Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob, the place to be. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate that. Special thanks to our producer, Brent Sullivan, up there in Syracuse. Another special thanks to International Legal Foundation's Jennifer Smith for joining us. We'll see you next week. Have a good one, radio. Thank you.